Welcome to Stone's Notes by Stone Consulting. I'm Maureen Stonehouse. On today's episode, I'm talking to Greg Vanek, geologist at Petronas. We'll be talking about Greg, Murray Gingras, and George Pemberton's scientific article titled Reservoir Characterization of Burrow-Associated Dolomites in the Upper Devonian Wobbeman Group, Pine Creek Gasfield, Central Alberta, Canada. Some of the highlights include discussing the difference between dual porosity and dual permeability due to different burrow fill from the background matrix. We're rocking out today with Greg. Welcome to Stone's Notes. Hi Greg and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about um, some technology and work that you've done in the past. Oh, my pleasure. So you've done a lot of work on ecology throughout your career, and geologists all realize the significance of this study. But could you explain for non-geology folks why looking at burrows is important? I think the big one uh, on some of my experience is that a lot of the work we do ends up going into static models, which ultimately have an impact on dynamic models. So our understanding of porosity relationships or permeability might traditionally be derived from the well logs, which I think a lot of finance and engineering folk understand, but being able to understand the depositional environment, sand body distribution, location of uh, the supposed sweet spots, a lot of those trace fossil information where you can derive a lot of um, more detailed uh, ideas regarding uh, the depositional environment, the stratigraphy, uh, where you should place wells. You get that by looking at the core, and that's where I think the trace fossil material really comes in handy. So I think for a lot of engineering um, and finance folks, I think they appreciate the idea of being able to better understand your uh, static model and it better informs your uh, dynamic model down the road. Yeah, it's very true. And you mentioned in there that uh, the different sedimentary environments. So in this study that you did here, um, you know, when you think of burrows, you often think of them occurring in sandstones at the beach and something you're more familiar with. But um, in this one, you had a limestone matrix and there was a chemical reaction that occurred in the burrows, switching it to dolomite. In your words, how would you explain this chemical phenomena happening? Well, it's actually quite uh, interesting because the burrows themselves, they are, they create these ideal microenvironments. And the environment itself within the burrow, they are often lined with organic material, whether it's polysaccharides or different mucus uh, type material. And what's uh, really cool about that is that these um, burrow microenvironments within a carbonate setting, they actually create these uh, reducing conditions. They have these sulfate reducing bacteria present within the burrows. And by a result, they actually help liberate these magnesium ions from the sulfate uh, magnesium cations. So therefore, you actually allow for some of the magnesium ions to help promote the domatization within the burrows. Quite often in uh, carbonate settings, it's a difficult uh, task to determine what the domatization model might be, hence the whole dolomite problem. Um, more modern research uh, looking at both modern settings and uh, examples from the rock record do show that these burrows, if not completely, they do help promote some domatization within the burrow environment. And we see that in many cases, for example, in the Wobbeman 
uh, the Tyndall Stone in Western Canada, or Division uh, Tyndall Stone, that's a really good example. You see a lot of really good examples in the Middle East. For example, the Guahar field, you see a lot of domatized burrows there. So the idea is that these burrows do create these microenvironments that help promote uh, localized domatization um, themselves. Yeah, that's a good point, talking about the sulfur really starting the reaction. And you did mention in, the, in your paper as well that the dolomite's quite key because it increases the porosity and permeability, um, making it a more attractive reservoir. So we'll dig into that a little bit more here and touch on why that matters. So your study focused on the Pine Creek field. Why did you choose this area? It was uh, when I was in graduate school, it was one of the areas that we were able to get our hands on a lot of really good core data. Mm. Some of my supervisors, uh, doctors, Jingra, Murray Jingra and George Pemberton. Um, traditionally, a lot of their studies looking at borough enhanced permeability and porosity have looked at clastic environments yeah. um, because that's where traditionally you would see a lot of trace falses and that's where a lot of people appreciate their significance. But one of their case study examples that they want had wanted to look into more detail was carbonates. The Pine Creek gas field with the Wabaman was a really good example where you do see these really quite uh, quite large burrows that are domatized. And since I had uh, no fear of looking at carbonates, I suppose with another word, a lot of uh, a lot of folks would rather only look at sandstones or classic material. I thought it was a wonderful opportunity to look at something different and at the time brought in my uh, understanding of other depositional settings as well. So worked out quite nicely in many different aspects. Yeah, working on carbonates, everyone always wants to do it for the field trips, but not many get the opportunities. So you lucked out on that one. And you did get a chance to look at quite a bit of the rock. Um, you examined 11 of the cores. And in that, you identified four facies that you interpreted to be shallow water carbonate platform deposits. And you have a very good figure in your paper picturing them. Do you want to describe each facies? Yeah. So within the within the Pine Creek uh, gas field, there was uh, predominantly four main facies within, I had interpreted within a shallow dipping carbonate ramp type depositional setting. So the main facies that um, the paper had revolved around was the Dolomite filled burrow matrix type uh, facies. So what was interesting about that was that you do see, for instance, these dolomitized burrows um, that have a very sucrosic type dolomite within the burrows. And then the limestone matrix was mainly a wacky stone, mudstone type matrix. And I had interpreted that as a, as a intratidal uh, low energy intertidal carbonate ramp type setting and you do see similar looking face depositional interpretations within many other historical carbonate ramp uh, intervals and then the other three main faces that had existed were a mixture of palatal type uh, faces so for instance you might have had palatal pack stone grain stones you might have had uh, fossiliferous Palatal packstone grainstone facies, and then you might have had just a palatal grainstones. And the difference between the three facies was, for the most part, differences in fossiliferous material, whether it was uh, macro fossils you might be able to distinguish, or it was just the fact that you saw, for example, palatal uh, 
a Polito-dominated facies, um, which could have been an example of a more restricted lagoonal type of setting. Uh, for the most part, I think the significance of all these four facies was being able to distinguish the bar-turbated horizon from the non-bar-turbated, because one of the interesting aspects about the Pine Creek Fast Field was that it was drilled back in the late 50s by Hudson Bay uh, Company, and for the most part, ecnology wasn't really recognized as something to study until mainly the 70s and 80s. And in Western Canada, it was mainly George Pemberton, Dr. George Pemberton, that actually kind of made a lot of people realize that you could use ecnology to study depositional environments, uh, stratigraphic horizons, but you can appreciate it in the 50s, no one really cared. So I figured for this, uh, for this uh, paper and the study, being able to recognize all four facies and how they map out was important because historically it would have been the palatal grainstone, packstone facies that would have acted as your reservoir facies and your bioturbated intervals might have been overlooked, especially if you would have been collecting core plugs from the more limestone matrix that had really poor reservoir properties. So that's where the, that's where the inspiration there was to separate out the different facies so we could understand the different reservoir intervals and therefore get a better grasp on how much does the bioturbated interval actually exist within the cord uh, sections and therefore um, have an impact on reservoir quality from a bioturbated perspective. Yeah, it's a really good point that that JCs would have been overlooked in the past and now um, it adds potential gas volumes to the field. Uh, you did compare the biogenic um, burrows to a natural fracture system, um, kind of a similar idea, which I thought was a good way of looking at it because, you know, fractures really increase the permeability from less than one millidarcies to the 10 to 100 millidarcy range. What are your thoughts on uh, bioturbation versus natural rock fractures? Well, it's interesting because if you look at a traditional dual porosity, dual permeability, like you had mentioned, it was mainly for fractured systems. You would look at um, the fractures and you would say, well, how much permeability contrast would you have within your overall reservoir? If it was greater magnitude, then you would say, well, we have a dual permeability system. For the purpose of this paper, and I can understand maybe the confusion, we were looking at the contrast and permeability between the burrows and the matrix where if you had greater than two magnitude uh, permeability difference, you would have a dual permeability system. Whereas if you had less than two magnitude permeability difference between the burrows and matrix, you would call it a dual porosity. But what's interesting in that sense is that I think there are some similarities as well, because if you do have a zone that is highly bioturbated and you do have a lot of burrows that are interconnected, and they happen to have a significantly different permeability contrast with the matrix, it stands to reason that if you were bring that reservoir on production, the predominant flow would occur within those bioturbated facies, whereas the matrix, it would be a secondary flow that would only start occurring after the burrows had become uh, drained. No different than if you were to look at a fractured reservoir, whereas if the fractures were to drain first, and then the matrix would uh, contribute to your production um, thereafter. So there is similarities, but at the same time, the terminology, I guess, was borrowed from the structural geology realm and used for our, our utilization within the um, biogenic permeability discussion. 
I like how you talk about too the difference between the matrix and the burrows and you had a really nice spot permeameter image showing that in your paper which just makes it so clear that you need to look at the rocks and the core to see this difference you're not going to pick up it's similar to fractures you won't pick that up by just looking at logs you really need to know the depositional environment as well as um, see what it looks like to see those differences uh, you did have a figure as well that showed the arithmetic mean geometric mean and harmonic mean of the permeability versus your bioturbation index so which ways of measuring permeability do you think really picked up on what you saw in the rock the best here? So again, this was a good way of looking at it because with the spot permeameter, we were able to do um, 0.5 centimeter grid uh, measurements on a core sample. So you can appreciate over a 30 to 50 centimeter section, you can gather quite a few data points. One of the things that we had done is that we had decided to look at the analytical way of actually characterizing the bulk permeability of a sample and what was uh, neat about that is that if you actually look at um, whether it's arithmetic harmonic or geometric we wanted to be able to understand the average permeability of the interval as if it was a homogeneous system being calculated so the formulas that we had used actually came from freeze and cherry it was a water uh, water permeability uh, equations back in the late 70s with the idea being that arithmetic would measure your parallel permeability, horizontal permeability domains. The harmonic would measure your uh, permeability domains perpendicular to your uh, horizons. And then the geometric would look at it as if it was a homogeneous isotropic system. And one of the things that we had wanted to do for the paper was that we wanted to measure the permeabilities and look at it, the arithmetic, harmonic, and geometric mean. And then what was cool about it is that when we took the bulk sample, we would take the three highest measurements and the three lowest measurements, and we would average those out, and the three lowest measurements would then compose your lowest permeability within the actual sample, and your three highest would average your three um, higher average permeability points within the sample. And therefore, the three lowest would be your matrix values, and your three highest would be your uh, burrowed sampled values. And what we had determined was that we said, okay, we know that historically a sample would be measured on a scale of zero to 100%, or a scale of zero to six on bioturbation intensity. And we wanted to be able to say, okay, depending on your different bioturbation intensities, at which point would you be able to determine if you have, let's say, horizontal, geometric, or arithmetic fluid flow within a sample, depending on your um, permeability contrast within the sample? Because like we had mentioned earlier, if you have a dual permeability, your contrast is quite great between the burrows and matrix, whereas in a dual prosody, your contrast would be quite uh, low between the burrows and matrix. But nevertheless, you would believe that your burrows would have some form of impact on the reservoir. So we wanted to be able to determine, okay, at which point would the burrows act as a predominantly fluid flow system within a sample at which bioturbation intensity, and at which point would you only see matrix uh, contribution within the sample, with the idea being that the greater the permeability contrast, the more prominent, for example, your fluid flow might 
be dictated by the borough density versus matrix density. So when we measured everything out, we were able to see some pretty strong contrasts when you group everything together. And one of the cool things about the Wabaman is that the boroughs and matrix do see some pretty strong contrasts. Uh, for instance, you can see permeabilities of up to 300, 350 millidarcies within the boroughs, whereas the matrix was only usually less than one millidarcy. So one of the things we had noticed was that for the most part, fluid flow was um, quite impacted um, by bedding parallel flow directions. And then what we wanted to do from there was we also wanted to compare it to numerical models. So we could then take our measurements, put them into a numerical model simulator populated with different bioturbation intensities, and then we could compare what those average arithmetic, harmonic, and geometric mean permeabilities might be compared to the analytical way. And we found that there was a fairly close match. So what was interesting was that within dual porosity models, where the contrast and permeability between the boroughs and matrix was less than two orders of magnitude, your bulk permeability is best estimated using the geometric mean at low to moderate volumes. So for example, uh, 25 to 65%, fluid flow would come from all different directions and you needed it around 65 to 80 percent borough dolomite or let's say a borough intensity of three to four to actually show arithmetic mean permeability within your samples whereas in examples where you have the bulk permeability being greater than two orders of magnitude so a dual permeability system in those cases you'll need it at around 50 percent borough dolomite to actually start showing an arithmetic mean permeability so what, one of the things we were able to show is that not only bioturbation intensity, but also the permeability contrast between the boroughs and matrix is going to have a big impact on how the fluid flow is going to exist within your um, samples. So it almost sounds like, <clears throat> from what you're saying, that you can have um, dolomitized bioturbation where the porosity is increasing, but not the permeability and then it would not increase the fluid flow as much. So you not only need to make sure the um, bioturbation is present, but you need to make sure the difference in the permeability exists there. And if it doesn't exist, it wouldn't necessarily be the bases that you're interested in chasing. Correct. And that's one of the biggest challenges with the carbonate system is that it is very diagenetically uh, modified. So there are good examples uh, in the subsurface where you actually have burrows that actually reduce your reservoir quality, where the burrows actually have reduced permeability uh, contrast relative to the matrix. So in that case, your matrix is actually the better of the two uh, intervals for producing relative to the burrows. And again, if you don't um, understand that, you might be able, you would probably overestimate the quality of that reservoir and what you're going to be able to get out of it. Or in this case, you would look at the matrix and say, oh, yeah, it's not very good. You have low permeabilities, but the boroughs actually have good quality. So being able to understand those zones, those are intervals that you might be able to preferentially frack or do acid squeezes or preferentially drill a horizontal well into those zones. But again, it requires looking at the core, doing detailed mapping and actually understanding the stacking patterns of your different reservoir zones and seeing where the sweet spots might exist within your subsurface models. So would you say then that there's 
dual permeability in certain depositional environments more so. So when you're mapping, if you found that it was within a certain portion on the carbonate platform, would you be more expecting to see the good bioturbation there? That's difficult to address because I think each carbonate system would be wholly different in many ways because you do look at a lot of the diagenesis that happens after deposition. So depending on burial, water geochemistry, and how the basin had evolved over the period of um, hundreds of millions of years, um, I think each case needs to be looked at individually. I think if you were to look at it and say, well, do we expect a certain type of um, biogenic enhanced uh, or biogenically modified permeability, you could look at it and say, well, maybe this portion of the carbonate ramp would have some form of bioturbation enhanced impact based on the fact that, you know, bioturbation might be more likely within certain portions of your carbonate system. You could look at that, but in terms of being able to determine if it has a positive or negative impact, I think being able to get the core and actually doing specific measurements is critical because otherwise you would either make erroneous assumptions either positively or negatively. Yeah, it's a very good point. Assumptions are not always, not always good, right? No. So lately travel has been really restricted due to COVID and everybody's dreaming of going on vacation. So if we were to pretend that we were out there snorkeling over the Wabaman here, where would we, how far out would we have swam to come across the peloid facies as well as the uh, bioturbated dolomitized burrows? You, you wouldn't take very much. I mean, a carbonate ramp by definition is quite uh, shallow dipping. So you would probably, depending on the system, some uh, probably less than a couple of kilometers, you would probably encounter it quite quickly. Um, in the modern today, the most probably direct example most people understand comes from the Arabian Gulf or Persian Gulf in the Middle East, where that's probably the closest example that we have of a really good um, ramp example. Um, there isn't as many in the modern as you would see, let's say, in historic, but even the modern Persian Gulf does have a lot of challenges because it is more of a foreland type basin. It has a lot of tectonic climate, um, eustatic um, impacts that have both clastic and carbonate impact. But if we were to go to a modern setting that was idealized, it wouldn't take very long, some couple hundred meters, you'd probably see your both within lagoonal and then the more open marine uh, intervals that provided there is no uh, carbonate buildups, you would probably find your, uh, Bioturbated intervals quite nicely. You'd see different shrimp uh, floating around, uh, burrowing away quite nicely, and it wouldn't take much. Yeah, it's always nice to visualize what you're looking at in the modern and have that um, image in your head. So this is a lot of really great info. Is there anything else that uh, you'd like to touch on? I think with the I think with the bioturbated impact of reservoir quality today, the the most important thing, I think, is just for one, recognizing that your static models, your depositional interpretation, I think it benefits for one, being able to understand the technology. Um, I think it goes without saying being able to understand the depositional model, understanding the stacking patterns of your different facies. I think for one, that's probably the most important thing in a lot of cases, just being able to understand that. Two, using your technology to understand your stratigraphic models, being able to understand the different uh, horizons that you are targeting. 
And then three, if you are so bold to actually go and make some measurements on these core samples so that you can understand some of the porosity and permeability distributions within your reservoir, not only from a log approach, but actually from the core examples and saying, you know what, these burrows are having a direct impact. And if there are zones that are more biotrepated than others, it would maybe uh, behoove the geologist and engineer to actually dig into the intervals and say, well, maybe there are mapped horizons that will have more of a biotrepated impact. Let's actually look into it a little bit and actually determine if it actually has an impact on our, on our fluid flow models, our static model, dynamic models, and actually maybe uh, venture out of the common realm as to the idea that only um, engineering models are only going to be impacted by fractures or matrix quality or the more traditional cementation, maybe actually include a different uh, theory into play. I think that's probably one of the real benefits of um, this study more than anything is showing that you can uh, evaluate, your reservoir, evaluate your reservoir using different uh, methodologies. Yeah, and I like this methodology because instead of just having a thin section where you see the increased porosity, you have a lot of numbers and values that you can take and plug into the model. So it's quite useful from the whole cycle of the play for all disciplines, right? That's right. And you never know what's going to be the good and bad because one of the things with technology, especially within a carbonate system, is that it's not until you look under a microscope or actually take some direct measurements that you're going to actually fully comprehend the impact on reservoir quality. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you can go as far as to actually map out those different horizons vertically and laterally throughout your field, you could say, well, you know what, maybe there's 10 horizons that we can map out. Maybe it's only the couple of uh, top horizons that actually have the best reservoir quality. The other ones, the burrows aren't as good, or maybe they're more cemented, or maybe the bar turbation intensity as it is, isn't as great. But on a well log, you might not be able to determine it, especially if you're looking at uh, wells that are quite old. The vintages of the well logs might not be as good. You probably won't have any unless you've shot new seismic on the field. So you're, probably, you're working with quite, uh, quite vintage data, and sometimes your core is your best uh, indicator to determine actually what's happening. So in that sense, you're able to better resolve some of the issues that you wouldn't get otherwise. Oh, exactly. You're not going to pick up on the bioturbation with your gamma ray curve. That's just not going to do the trick, right? No, no. And if it does, how do you know what your bioturbation intensity is? How do we know the distribution? How do we know the type of trace fossils that we're dealing with? Um, how can we actually know whether or not we're dealing with a dual porosity, dual permeability system? What kind of reserves are we going to allocate to those intervals? Are we going to use some generic core plugs or are we going to use maybe bulk permeability sampling and actually use that to populate our um, static model to come up with uh, in place gas and oil volumes. I think there's a lot of different aspects to it that we can actually start manipulating as geologists and actually help inform the engineers as the other way around where we just give them the basic answers that they're looking for. I think we can maybe take back the torch a little bit and uh, better inform the better inform some of the decisions that need to be made from a both technical and business uh, side of things. Yeah, exactly. The more info you have, the better the decisions are, right? As long as you incorporate it properly. So I think this is a really fascinating method and an interesting study you did. And I'm really glad you shared a bit more detail on it today. It really clarified and helped um, visualize things. And hopefully everyone learned a thing or two by listening. So thank you so much for doing this, Greg. No, thank you. It was my pleasure. 
Stone's Notes is brought to you by Stone Consulting. We can be found online at www.stoneconsulting.info or send us an email anytime at stoneconsultingcorp at outlook.com. On behalf of everyone here, I'm Maureen Stonehouse. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.